Hello and welcome to another edition of the Confession Box. After a two-month sabbatical, we're back. Uh, Michael, you were in Rome. I was in Rome. All work-related, of course. But now we're back here. We're back here to return to, to what matters, the important stuff, the Confessional Box here. So Absolute great to pleasure ha- to be back. Wonderful great to have you again. Back. Absolutely. So let's start with uh, some of the topics and uh, the pieces in this uh, this week's Irish Catholics. So we're, begin- we're going to begin with the uh, the front page here and the possible move to, to make Cardinal John Henry Newman a doctor of the church which is uh, undoubtedly one of the highest honours in the church and bestowed on a select number of people. So you can, can you provide information as to where we are currently positioned in the process and the likelihood of this proceeding, Michael? Full disclosure here first. Thank I you. worship in the Newman University Church okay. in Dublin. That's where I go to Mass. Yeah. So you have intelligence morning. on this. So I, well, I have a particular interest in this. And, uh, you know, we led a parish group to Rome in 2019 for the, uh, the canonization of uh, Cardinal Newman, something that was uh, very dear to us, obviously, in that community community in uh, in Dublin. We know, of course, Cardinal Newman came to Ireland in the mid-19th century to found uh, University College Dublin. It was not an entirely uh, pleasant experience for him, we have to say. He found the Irish hierarchy a little bit difficult and perhaps not supportive of his vision of a Catholic third-level institution. But one of the things that he did when he was there was he built the Newman University Church on St. Stephen's Green. And I would say to any listeners, you know, if you're a regular to Dublin, you might not know this church. It's hidden away a little bit in the far side of the Green, but really do go in and have a look. It is a beautiful testament to Cardinal Newman's faith. But to this point uh, about him being made a doctor of the church, this is something that the American bishops have asked the Vatican for. They've petitioned the Vatican for. And this is something now that the Irish bishops are throwing their weight behind as well. As you say, this is a rare honour. To this point in 2,000 years of church history, there have only been 37 people declared doctors of the church. You're talking about you know, uh, amazing people like, uh, like Athanasius, like uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, and then of course uh, more 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 modern ones. Uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux, for example, has been named a Doctor of the Church, and these are people who the Church hold up as really excellent proponents of the Catholic faith, people who should be read widely. And what's interesting in the context of Newman is, because under Pope Francis, we're seeing a revival of interest in the Second Vatican Council, that ecumenical council in the 1960s that sought this uh, aggiornamento, the updating of the Catholic faith to uh, suit the times while not changing any, any doctrines or anything central to the church, but making it more presentable to a modern world. Newman is often called the father of Vatican II, uh, precisely because Newman spoke very much about this role, the importance of the laity in the life of the church and the importance of uh, involving lay people. Uh, so that's really the uh, the energy behind this. And many people think uh, Pope Francis, uh, a synodal pope, is very much about consulting lay people in the life of the church, that this is something he, he may well be drawn to. And Newman could, in fact, become something of a patron of synodality. Yeah, yeah. And I saw Fintan Monaghan was supportive of this as well. Are there any other Irish bishops supportive or has it just been a solitary voice so far? But it's something that they would support, I suppose, given the connection. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, in some ways, it might even be uh, like an act of uh, atonement for yeah. the ill treatment of Cardinal Newman when he was here oh, yeah. by the hierarchy at mm. the time where the Irish Bishop Conference, uh, you know, a century and a half later to back a call for him to be made a doctor of the church. So I think there'll be no pushback on it. I think that's something uh, there'll be a lot of warmth towards in the hierarchy. Of course, Bishop Monaghan is the lead voice on it because he's a great Newman scholar and has, in fact, written a book very recently, a very fine book about Cardinal Newman. 
Yes, um, moving on to a rather inimitable character with the recent death of Ben Dunn. Also, I think it's important, Michael, for full disclosure and full transparency to mention the first commonality that we had was finding out we both worked in Dunn stores. Come on, it's a rite of passage for Irish teenagers but Michael, to be stacking shelves in Dunn stores. <laughs> Michael, admittedly, it was during a more colourful and boisterous teenage years. So. Oh, indeed. And look, um, I, for me, it's a lot longer than you. In fact, I am so old. When I worked in Dunn stores, we used to have these little magic things called price guns. Yeah. We used to have to go around sticking labels on everything to let everyone know the price this was long before anyone thought barcodes would rule our lives the way futuristic. they do now yeah very futuristic yeah especially uh oh it was way ahead of everyone else obviously very <laughs> but uh what i remember personally about mr dunn was uh Definitely is, is very detectable self-esteem, shall I say. As a young boy, I remember him shamelessly berating Jackie Skelly Jims over the radio about their expensive prices. And of course, he wasn't a man devoid of any personal troubles, you know, drug problems, various scandals. And of course, the infamous IRA kidnapping all entered his life at some stage. But above all, as we found out in this week's Irish Catholic, he was a prayerful man who found serenity in one particular prayer. So tell us more about, about him. You know, there was something very profoundly Catholic in the broader sense of that word about Ben Dunn. I mean, he was a man who wore his he wore his wounds on his sleeve, if we can say that. Uh, I mean, he's a man who knows what it's like to go to the gates of hell and come back and, and no redemption. Uh, he very often didn't speak about uh, his kidnapping experience with the provisional IRA in the early 1980s, but that was clearly a horrific, uh, horrific experience for him. Perhaps what he's uh, best known for or best remembered for is the the incident in Florida in the early 1990s when he was uh, arrested in his very public battle there uh, with drugs and of course the uh, immense problems that led to in the Dunn family and eventually his ousting from uh, from Dunn stores but uh, he was the kind of man who could uh, who could could feel and rise again he was one of those kind of serial entrepreneurs and that's what he did and he started the the gyms and actually made going to the gym very very accessible for lots of people because he really brought down uh, a lot of the prices and I mean you're, you're right about his, his larger than life uh, approach I mean you talk about uh, you know targeting the other gyms in his ads I mean I, I remember because even though they reconciled in later years his sister Mrs. Heffern and Margaret Heffern who was also a, a very devout Catholic isn't uh, she? very yeah, much yeah. so a very mm. very religious woman mm. a, a very good woman mm. involved in many many good causes uh, they reconciled uh, in recent years despite their earlier difficulties but you know he could never he could never come away from even ribbing her as well. I remember a few years ago she was running these advertisements in the newspapers saying that Dunsters were going to match Aldi prices, mm-hmm. the, the 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 German discounter. And he said, when when I ran Dunsters, we used to beat prices, not match them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he he had that great sense of humor, but. Bendon, it was probably not a conventional Catholic in a sense. I mean, he was he was mass going, he was devout in his own way, but precisely because he knew his own demons, precisely because he knew his own difficulties. And in some ways, as I say, he wore those on his sleeve. He was a man who spoke a lot about prayer and he spoke a lot about the importance of prayer. And, you know, perhaps not, not unusual for people who've been through the kind of difficulties that Ben was through as well. His prayer was always one day at a time. Give me enough grace, God, to see me through this day. Uh, and I think that's something that will resonate with a lot of people but certainly a very very colourful character gone from the Irish scene and uh, you know of course it would be remiss not to mention his involvement in the various uh, tribunals and payment scandals involving uh, the, the, the late Taoiseach uh, Mr Hawhey as well but a very very colourful time mm-hmm. in Irish history and uh, I, I suspect uh, e- even if people recall the more kind of roguish sides to Ben Dunn's character I think it will be as, uh, as a lovable role 
stroke. And I think that was clear in the outpouring of, of, of grief around his death. Because look, at 74, that's that's young to be dead by mm, the standards mm, of today. Mm. And I, I saw as well, uh, Father Brian Darcy said that he prioritized the elderly, particularly uh, during Christmas time as well, was very generous to them, offering generous cast prizes during raffles or something like that. So he was a considerate man, obviously. He yeah. absolutely was. Mm. And I remember once he said about, about money, for example, he said, you know, money's only useful if you spread it around. He said, having money is, 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 is no use. Now, mm. you might say for a man who had so much money, it's pretty, pretty easy to say that. Um, people who have less money might be, uh, might, might be less inclined to say that. But certainly he was a man who believed in sharing his generosity with others. He wasn't a man who was interested in hoarding. And even that time when he got the payout from the family in the 1990s, because, I mean, it was 100 million pounds, which which was a lot of money back then. Uh, you're talking multiples of that in uh, in today's in today's money. But uh, he, he he wasn't content just to sit back in retirement or live off that. He really wanted to get going again, and that's where the uh, the entrepreneurship came in. I think um, a very striking and challenging editorial this week by yourself, Michael, which touches on a number of issues: uh, eroding respect in society, a mental health crisis amongst youth. Uh, the tragic murder of school teacher Ashley Murphy, drug abuse, loneliness, and remarkably, remarkably gaslighting. Very uncharacteristic of you, Michael, to recognise the jargon of the time. Do you know what gaslighting means, Brandon? Inform me. Because I, I, I might be partial to it. So, <laughs> Gaslighting is this, uh, it's a form of psychological abuse, really. Uh, it's when people contrive to make you feel, actually, that you're going mad. So, for example, you might say in a friendship group, uh, if your friends are meeting up without you and you're being excluded from the group and you say, hey, guys, why do you not invite me to go to the cinema as well say oh oh, we didn't think about it or we we forgot you liked going to the cinema yeah. uh, and the the process is really to try to make you think that the problem is with you yeah that the problem is not with the other people yeah. so i discern a type of gaslighting going on in contemporary ireland mm. at the moment because every time i see a politician on the television they're telling us how we've never had it so good we've never been happier we've never been a more compassionate society every government move is all about underpinning the fact that modern Ireland is such a wonderful place to live. It's such a wonderful place to be. And yet, and yet, every statistic speaks of a country that's deeply unhappy. Uh, Suicide and self-harm are through the roof. The Child and Adolescence Mental Health Service cannot cope. Such is the huge dependency on it that many, many young people have now just to get them through uh, normal days. If you speak to colleges and universities, the counselling services and the colleges and universities have weeks-long waiting lists. Uh, So many students are seeking therapy for difficulties with mental mental health. A recent uh, survey showed we are the fourth highest users of cocaine in the world. That doesn't speak of a happy society. Violent crime is up. Murder is up. All of these things speak to a society that's not happy. It speaks to a society where something has gone wrong. And the trigger for me, Brandon, around this was, I have to say, listening last week to the very compelling victim Mm. impact statement of young Ryan Casey. You were very impressed by that. I was very impressed by that. Ryan Casey was the the boyfriend, the childhood sweetheart of Ashleen Murphy. Ashleen Murphy was uh, the the school teacher, a wonderful person, a wonderful parishioner, a devotee of traditional Irish music. 
music, the embodiment, as Ryan said in his victim impact statement, of everything that was good about our society. And she had her life so tragically taken uh, in a diabolical fashion by uh, Josef Puska, uh, who has who's been jailed for the mandatory life sentence for that. But the fact even that Puska was, I have to say, such a person of low character that he lied all the way during the, the trial, even though it was obvious, all of the forensic evidence, all of the evidence pointed to his guilt. But he wouldn't even do the family of Ashley in the mercy of admitting that he had done this so that they wouldn't have to go through the trial process. So I was so impressed by Ryan's victim impact statement. Here's a young man who has lost the love of his life in the most appalling circumstances and circumstances that could have been avoided. And he said in his victim impact statement, this is not the country that Ashleen and I grew up in. Something has gone wrong in this country. And I would love for that to be the start of a conversation among our political classes, rather than just simply saying, We've never had it so good. Ireland's the best country in the world. And I want to dump on Ireland. You know, there are lots of positive things about Ireland, you know, and certainly uh, we, we live lives now that uh, previous generations of Irish people, at least materially, could have only dreamt of. And yet, if I look back to a different time in Ireland, a simpler time, a less violent time, a less drug dependent time, a less alcohol dependent time, a less therapy dependent time, uh, I think perhaps there was something there that we don't have now. Uh, and I would just love a conversation around that. And I'm not being simplistic here either in saying that everything was perfect in the past because everyone went to mass. And now because there's a decline in religious practice, uh, that's the situation we find ourselves in. It's much, much deeper than that. The malaise or the unhappiness is much deeper than a simplistic one size uh, fits all answer because the past wasn't perfect either. And, you know, the veneer of sheer religiosity that was there in the past as well many many things that uh, that light has been shed upon in recent years and it's a good thing that that light has been shed upon but I really wonder in 50 years time from now when people look back on our society how will they diagnose the unhappiness the violence the drug abuse the alcohol abuse that's all around us now profound words and definitely something to contemplate now for for future for future Ireland definitely in, into the next number of years um moving on to something quite technical now there's been a long and sustained legal battle in Finland that has just recently come to a conclusion uh, where a Finnish MP was acquitted, essentially exonerated of hate speech charges levelled against her for expressing orthodox Christian beliefs uh, against uh, about related to marriage. Um, there are two questions here, Michael, I will pose. So ridiculously, I think, in my opinion, it should have never should have never got to court. So what were the reasons for this ever getting to court? And secondly, can a similar scenario be expected in a post hate speech Ireland? Well, just well, hey, sorry, hate speech bill, Ireland. Yeah, to bring people up to date on the case, you're talking about the case of uh, Pavi Robinson, uh, as you say, a uh, colourful, somewhat controversial legislator in uh, Finland. And um, it can hardly be controversial to people, at least in the Western world, to state traditional uh, Christian understanding of marriage. This has been something that has been held for 2000 years and uh, is widely established in Western European uh, culture that um, marriage is between uh, one man and one woman, uh, marriage is for life and uh, marriage is open to uh, to procreation. And uh, that can hardly be, be a controversial uh, opinion. And yet uh, this MP, she was uh, she was 
reported to the police. This was for a tweet in which, and you know, people can uh, disagree with uh, the contents of her tweet, and uh, I'm sure many people do. She was critical of the Lutheran Church uh, in Finland sponsoring a, a pride event, a, a gay pride event, and she was saying this goes against uh, traditional uh, Christian understanding of marriage and uh, sexuality. Some people will disagree on that, but there's no doubt that uh, she is articulating what is the uh, traditional viewpoint. So she was reported initially to the police. Uh, the police decided there was no case to answer. Um, but then uh, they have a different legal system than we have. So prosecutors in Finland are, are greatly empowered. So a local prosecutor who uh, some people have accused of being on a political campaign really actually opened the case anyway and decided she was going to prosecute anyway and really, really wanted to uh, push this case forward. But the, the MP, she has been, uh, she's been found uh, free to have said what she said in the Court of Appeals in Helsinki, but now the prosecutor wants to take it to the Supreme Court. So look, you and I both know where this is going to end up. This is eventually going to end up in the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Uh, there's no question about that. The European Court of Human Rights is the body which uh, supervises the Convention on Human Rights. A key part of the Convention on Human Rights is freedom of speech. This is a key value, albeit a value that is probably taken seriously in North America than it ever has been in, in Europe. We've always sought to place limits on uh, on freedom of speech for all kinds of reasons. And could this happen in a post-hate speech Ireland? The simple answer is yes, um, because we've already seen circumstances where the police in Scotland have opened an investigation under their hate speech legislation for nothing more sinister than simply quoting passages from the Bible. So we're dealing with a situation here. So one person's free speech becomes another person's hate speech. And this is why I'm very very, very cautious about hate speech, hate speech laws where they appear because actually what they turn into they turn into secular blasphemy laws they turn into a circumstance where oh you've hurt such and such a person's feelings uh, therefore um, you know you have to be taken to court you have to be prosecuted because you have hurt their feelings and let me say there's a difference here no one is talking about having the right to incite violence or to incite hatred mm -hmm. against minorities or any groups in society mm -hmm. all of which by the way is against the law at the moment now in this podcast now if I said something inflammatory that encouraged violence against any members of our community or any group within our society I would rightly be prosecuted and you would be prosecuted for giving me the forum for so doing but we're at now at where the situation whereby if i say uh, the traditional christian understanding of marriage is between one man and one woman then that's not something that i can be prosecuted for in the future but if the hate speech law is badly written as it has been in other jurisdictions then we will find a situation where someone can call the local garda station and say i heard michael kelly on brandon scott's podcast say x y and z i was very very offended by i felt that what he said was hateful so Will you please carry out an investigation? And next thing, I'll get a knock on the door from the guards. I don't think anyone wants a scenario like that. And my goodness, at a time when we're talking about how under-resourced and overworked the guards are, I suspect the last people who want to be doing this are our valiant members of Angarda Shikana as well, who really want to keep our society safe and not be going around interfering with what people have written on their social media pages. And we're not talking about ideologies or polemics here we're talking about just a fear that this law might be overreaching and this is where i suppose i think there have been two prominent examples of this in the doll in the form of jim o'callaghan and in in the shannon michael mcdowell is it now time for barristers or solicitors or lawyers in general Aaron, who are in a position of power in the shannon and in the doll to raise something like this and say this could possibly be our future yes it is it's mm -hmm. very important that uh, they look to these international examples because our own courts our own police force always look to other jurisdictions for examples of 
uh, best practice or where there are laws uh, abroad. And certainly we know that the huge NGO sector in Ireland, which is funded by the taxpayers to a tune of about 5 billion euro a year, that's yet 5 billion, not 5 million. So it's a huge amount of money. And they have been pushing very, very strongly for this. They're a very, very successful lobby arm. It's a very curious situation we have in Ireland where taxpayers fund uh, uh, third parties so much money to actually lobby the government on uh, government policy. I mean, one can imagine uh, what what could be spent within the Department of Justice if they had an extra uh, 5 billion euro in terms of uh, keeping our communities safe. But it's something that people need to be very aware of. I think it's something people need to speak to their politicians about. And okay, people say the likes of Finland, the likes of what's going on in Scotland, that these are isolated cases but the fact is they're not isolated cases and all you need is activists with too much time on their hands to be trawling through people's social media pages to be listening to this podcast which by the way they should be doing anyway of course but not to get us into trouble um that's all you need you need a bit of activism and suddenly the guardies time is completely taken up with spurious cases uh, attempting to prosecute people for expressing opinions that i mean look it can hardly come as a surprise to anyone that the editor of the Irish Catholic newspaper believes traditional Catholic teaching. Mm. I, that to me wouldn't seem like a controversial point. I suspect the editor of the Church of Ireland Gazette follows okay. traditional Anglican teaching. Mm. I mean, I would not find that remotely controversial. Or that the editor of the Socialist Worker newspaper is probably a, a socialist yeah. or a Trotskyite or a, mm. a Leninist. I can't mm. keep up with it. Or delusional. Like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, concluding uh, with something positive. Um, because sometimes doom and gloom feels like it's the agenda of the day if you're a Catholic in this country. Um, but a not insignificant number of men gather to discern vocations to the priesthood. I think it was just last weekend, Michael. So something to be possibly hopeful about? Yes, absolutely. This is certainly something to be hopeful about. This is a special year of prayer for the vocations to the diocesan priesthood. And they had a vocations awareness event in Maynooth, the National Seminary, which really has been struggling in recent years because of the crisis of vocations. But they had 36 young men come along to that to at least express interest in discerning a vocation. And you know what, Brandon, that word discernment, which has become so much part of our lexicon because of Pope Francis talking about it because of synodality bringing in you see his old Jesuit training the Ignatian idea of discerning discerning the spirits discerning what God's will is sometimes in the past we've been a little bit too blasé a lad comes to the parish priest and says oh I'm thinking of becoming a priest father and three weeks later the lad is in Maynooth uh, training to become a priest the church is much more keen now on discerning so you know a prayerful walking along with someone to discern you know is that really what's in their heart is that really what God wants for them and actually pause actually taking time and I think that's a good thing and I think where that has been done that is is bearing fruit and also a key part of what we've had emerge in Ireland in recent years is this thing called the propagutic year the propagutic year is a preparatory year for a young man who's considering a vocation to the priesthood where you know he he learns some kind of basic stuff around around prayer on spirituality because look we we're no longer living in the Catholic culture we once were uh, we can't uh, we can't take for granted perhaps that someone grew up in a prayerful home or uh, grew up in an environment where spirituality or Catholicism was prioritized. So it's about being aware of that as well. But I certainly think this is a hopeful sign. And you just have to keep pushing along in this. Sometimes I get a bit disappointed in Ireland because sometimes the attitude to vocation seems to be a bit like, uh, you know, Ned Flanders' parents in The Simpsons. We've tried nothing, man, and nothing works. Um, so uh, I, I think... And you're, fact- uh, you, Mike, and you're culturally informed as well. 
Got to be done with. No, the no end to your talents. Although I think The Simpsons at this stage are probably older than I am. So evergreen, I'm sure, evergreen. I'm not sure how evergreen. done with the young people yeah. that is. But look, that is a really positive sign. A really positive sign that the church is taking this seriously. And you know what? Getting vocations to the priesthood, it is darn hard mm. work. And a lot of money as well. The sleeves. A lot yeah. of money involved there yeah. as well. A lot of money yeah. involved. But mm. uh, you know, it takes seven years to uh, to train a priest. And you know, they used to say in rural Tyrone, where I was from, when they talk about vocations, it takes seven years to train a priest and three gen- generations of prayer to mold a priest amen amen thank you so much for that michael as, Pleasure, as fascinating as ever thank you so much